Welcome back to Science Fiction Double Feature. We're back after a few months off with a double dose of heresy. We talked to Yoon Ha Lee about Raven Stratagem, the second installment in the Machineries of Empire series. And then, Professor Claire Taylor from the University of Nottingham tells us about heresy and heretics here on Earth, or at least in the Middle Ages. Raven's Stratagem takes place immediately after the very explosive events in the first book in the series, Nine Fox Gambit. But the stakes are even higher in this book, with threats from outside the Hexerkit lurking in space. However, it's the internal turmoil and internal conflict that really drives the plot in this book. So much delightful scheming awaits you. But before I give away any spoilers, here's Yoon Ha Lee explaining the universe of the Machineries of Empire series. So the universe is called the Hexarchet, and it runs on weird hand-wavy magical technology where which calendar your people use and what social system changes the laws of physics. So it's sort of a consensus reality. And because everyone's technology will stop working if you don't adhere to this calendar and these social structures, the government is very repressive. And the plot of the book has to do with people um, coming to realizations about the nature of their society and finding ways to resist it. There's a very interesting um, pairing <laughs> uh, but in Nine Fox Gambit between, I'm going to get his name wrong, Jadeo? Jadeo. Jadeo. Uh, and Cheris, mm-hmm. can you explain the concept of having revenants and anchors? Cheris is the heroine of Nine Fox Gambit, and she's an inexperienced captain, and she decides that she needs the advice of an experienced general in order to carry out her mission. And there is such a general available on tap, but he's dead, and he's been dead for 400 years. So what I had going on in this book was that his ghost is sort of attached to her. So they are both inhabiting the same body and he can talk to her and give her advice, but no one else can hear him. And because he's also notorious for the time he slaughtered his own soldiers in a massacre 400 years ago. Nobody really trusts him, and she always has to question whether his advice is good or can be trusted. And as you explained earlier, you had the kind of hand-wavy exotic weapons. Did Where did the idea for that come from? I was somewhat influenced by a computer game called Planescape Torment, which was based on the advanced Dungeons and Dragons Planescape setting. And Planescape was a fantasy setting where literally beliefs could shape reality. So this is Dungeons and Dragons. So you had, you know, people who were lawful good or chaotic evil or anything in between. And there were all these different planes where um, if you're good and you die, you end up going to the good plane. If you're evil and you die, you end up going to an evil plane. 
And locations in these planes could actually shift from one plane to another if everyone changed their um, beliefs about reality. And I thought that was incredibly cool, and I wanted to play with the idea, too. Uh, And are there influences from cultures in the here and now? There's a little bit of East Asian culture. I'm Korean-American, and I spent nine years of my childhood in South Korea. So you do have some of that. The characters are, by and large, cockamamie Asians. Um, The Kel are running around serving spiced cabbage pickles, which are actually kimchi. So there is some of that. But mostly I was interested in telling a story with big space battles in it. And how would you describe the type of government system that exists? Uh, I enjoyed, especially in Raven Stratagem, that... It's very powerful, but uh, you get to see a bit more of the kind of cracks and fissures in this book. I guess it would be an oligarchy, maybe. I don't, I'm not a political scientist, so I don't know what the terminology is. So there's a general population of regular citizens, and then there's sort of an elite who you have to test into these six factions, and each faction has a leader. So those six faction leaders are the ones who run the government. And it's not particularly realistic because they do spend a lot of time squabbling with each other and backstabbing each other. But, you know, space opera is not a genre really known for being super realistic. I was in it more to write sort of a, an adventure with large stakes. So I thought, I thought that would be okay for the purposes of space opera. I personally enjoyed all the backstabbing. <laughs> And I I was really intrigued by, well, much of it, but this one sentence where you alluded to that some of the reason that the more nasty elements of their uh, kind of exotic weapon system and things evolved uh, because of what Jadao had done in the past and that uh, kind of the worst elements were a reaction to him. Yeah. Can you explain a bit more about that or is that going to be kind of revealed in future books? Basically, Jadao um, really messed up the calendar because he massacred his own army and that it was just an incredibly horrific event to happen in their society. And as a reaction, Kel Command, who are the um, military commanders, instituted a type of brainwashing for their soldiers. So he actually made the situation worse for people in the military and other people, the ruling elite called the Leos, who used to be the seventh faction, wanted to reform the government because they were like, you know, things are getting too extreme in our society. And this um, system of ritual torture is not the way we want to continue things to go. So they started trying to reform the government towards democracy. And some of the other factions didn't like that. So they revolted and destroyed the Leos. So Jadal actually had this intent of um, making things better and actually made things worse. There's the mysterious like antagonist from the other bit of, uh, I guess, the galaxy or the universe, the Hafen. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see more of them or have we defeated them? They're basically defeated for the moment because um, the third book 
is more uh, focusing on the civil war that happens in the wake of Raven's Stratagem. So I've, I've read that there is a third one called Revenant Gun. Yes. Uh, is the kind of fallout from what happened at the... I can't give it away. That would be a massive spoiler. Uh, are we going to see some of the fallout being played out in that third book? Uh, the third book actually takes place nine years after the end of Raven's Stratagem. So some of the fallout has been settled, but there are definitely um, things that have not been completely played out. And you are going to see the return of uh, Kujin, Nurai Kujin, who has been sort of lurking in the background of books one and two, and he shows up again in book three, and people have to deal with him and what he implies for the whole system. <laughs> that preempted one of my questions, but that's excellent. Uh, I, I, I kind of missed his presence, his slightly mad presence, but uh, uh, or uh, I don't know. He, he sprinkles chaos, I think, <laughs> in the universe. Yes. Uh, and there were a lot more characters in uh, this book. So uh, the first book focused a lot on um, Jadal and Cheris. Uh, did you want to kind of expand your set of characters and their diversity uh, after the kind of the focus on those two characters in the first book? Yeah, I wanted to give sort of a more um, broad perspective on what was going on in the setting because Nine Fox Gambit was, in a sense, very claustrophobic because it's all Cheris and Jadao and the head games that Jadao is playing with Cheris. And it's also very focused on the military. And Raven Stratagem does have some amount of military action, but it also, I tried to give more of a sense of what life is like outside of that really narrow perspective. Are we going to see more of civilian life? We saw a little bit of it in this one, uh, in the third book. Not as such. The third book has a military character as the protagonist and then a servitor as the secondary point of view. Oh, excellent. That sounds really interesting because I really like the servitors as well. And your first book was nominated for a variety of awards. Uh, Nebula, Hugo, Arthur C. Clarke. Did that bring you new audiences or impacted how you wanted to approach the sequels? Well, the sequels were largely turned in by the time the award nominations happened. So there wasn't a lot that I could change. Um, I think it did bring in more readers who had not previously been aware of the books because there are a large number of people who will read things that are on um, award shortlists. And you've written a lot of short stories, and how has the kind of move to, I guess, a big series, essentially, uh, kind of changed the way you write? I think uh, one of the hardest things for me to get used to is that at novel length, you have a lot more space to develop your characters, and the reader really wants more um more of a character to identify with. When you're writing like a 4,000 word short story, you really don't have a whole lot of space to go into depth about a character's psychology. Like you can sort of capture a moment in their life, but you really can't get deep into a character arc. And that was something that I had to wrestle with. 
And how did you kind of... Man- I, I'm in the middle of a PhD, so I have like Scrivener and many folders and things like that. Oh, God, yes, Scrivener. <laughs> I imagine a book is similar in terms of organization. How do you keep like, you know, the history of the empire in your head, let alone like all the characters? Well, I started with a set of notes in a paper notebook written out in longhand. And so for Nine Fox Gambit, there are all these different ships and characters and which character is the captain of which ship. So I had lists and lists and lists of these things. And then when I decided to write uh, books two and three, I realized that there was all this information and there was no way for me to keep it all in my head, as you say. So I opened up another Scrivener file and I made a setting reference Bible. And it's like, it's literally 40,000 words of just keeping track of calendars and characters and the politics and all the details that I can't keep straight without help. <laughs> are there uh, are there bits that are in the kind of uh, notes that didn't make it into the book that you want to put into a book? Yeah, there were there were certainly some ideas that I wanted to explore in hypothetical future books that may or may not happen, and things that got cut because there wasn't room to put them in. I was really trying to avoid the books getting too long and really bloated. So, yeah, that definitely was a consideration. I very much appreciate it. I get a bit uh, scared off when suddenly, like, the, t- the second book turns into about three times as long as the first book. I have this rule that I don't read books that are longer than 400 pages. It has served me well because I'm actually a very slow reader. <laughs> And did you, when you were first conceiving of Nine Fox Gambit, did you imagine it as a series or did that evolve uh, as you were writing it? I accidentally a series. It it did not. I, I really meant it to be a standalone. <laughs> and then I came to the end of the, I think, second draft, maybe, or it might have been the rough draft. I don't remember clearly. And I had the idea for um, what Cheris would do next and what would happen in Raven's Stratagem and how that would end. So I said, well, I have the idea, so I might as well write it. And I started writing Raven's Stratagem, and I came to the end of Raven's Stratagem, and I had the idea for a third book, so I sort of accidentally a third book as well. By the way, I don't recommend doing it this well. I, this way. I think planning it out from the start is probably a much smarter way to do it, but that's sort of how it happened. Uh, and I saw in your acknowledgments uh, that you had beta readers. Do do things change much from from your kind of original draft to getting outside comments? Yes, absolutely. Um, my rough drafts tend to be very rough and very terrible. So once I get in the comments, I'm not afraid to make changes. I actually don't really enjoy the stage of writing where you have to sit there and churn out the words. I really prefer the revision stage of writing because it sort of feels like putting a puzzle together where you have all these disparate elements and you have to figure out a way to make them make sense and turn it into a cohesive whole. So that's actually the part that I enjoy more and finally do you do you like space operas would you recommend other space operas to people um i really love space opera which is why i wanted to write one 
Uh, I've actually only read one Ian Banks novel, but it was, what was it called? Player of Games. I liked that one. Um, I didn't read Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice until after I had written Nine Fox Gambit, but I really liked it too. Um, There was a young adult series by Douglas Hill called Last Legionary, which features um, basically this one mercenary on a revenge quest against the people who who destroyed his um, planet. And I read that in, I think, high school, and I really loved it, too. So there are just all sorts of examples of space opera, and I'm really thrilled that the subgenre has been making a resurgence because it's a lot of fun. I know Raven Stratagem just came out, <laughs> so I imagine uh, the third book is going to be a while, but do you know when it's going to come out? They have not told me. I would guess they would put it out in June 2018 just for consistency, but that's not a promise. No one's told me anything. So now we go from suppressing heresy to preserve exotic weapons effects to suppressing heresy to preserve the Christian community in medieval Europe. Claire Taylor is Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham, specialising in European history, including heresy, religious dissent, and the Albigensian Crusade. And what is heresy, you ask? Here's Claire Taylor with the answer. The thing about heresy is it's very much in the eye of the beholder, if you like. And so um, you can't really, when when we're talking about the Middle Ages particularly, you've you've got to see it as a juxtaposition to orthodoxy because there's no, without an idea of what is correct belief, orthodoxy, um, you can't really have a definition of heresy. So, um, so we, t- so historians tend to approach it as not a, not a thing in itself, but something that's defined by the church. Because obviously, people who were heretics didn't call themselves heretics. Um, so, what, what the way we kind of understand it is that through through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, the church was kind of tightening up what the definition of orthodoxy was, um, largely in its own interests. And so, anybody who really stood out against that was likely to be called a heretic. So, um, and so the church was doing things, for example, in the early Middle Ages, like deciding um, for certain that God created the world. That became orthodoxy. That God had created the world and the universe. That uh, that the sacraments of the church had actual power um, if a you know, priest performs them that the, the Eucharist is the is trans, so it's transubstantiation I can never say it transubstantiation the idea that the, the body and blood of Christ is the same as the, the bread and wine on the altar that the bread and wine actually literally gets transformed into being the blood, the body and, uh, blood and um, body of Christ that's that's orthodoxy um, the idea about the Trinity God Father, the Holy Ghost, that's the Trinity, that's that's orthodoxy. And so they established that that was the case and that was correct belief. And so if you doubted that, you were liable to be called a heretic. And did was heresy shaped partly by like the kind of people that they generally absorbed into uh, orthodox belief? Like I think Francis of Assisi was a bit of a challenge and others like that as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, they, to understand Francis of Assisi, um, you've to understand this group called the Waldensians, and in, they they established themselves in the 1170s, and they were very much. Um, like Francis of Assisi, and they, uh, in that they believed in absolute poverty, no, you know, no property at all for for any of them. But they went around preaching, and this was a thing you couldn't do. If you went around, if you wanted to preach, you had to have permission from your bishop. Uh, but it says in the Bible, Christ tells the apostles, "Go out and preach." So the Waldensians went out and preached, um, which is kind of challenging if you're the church and you want the monopoly on what's being preached. The difference, and so they were called um, heretics and outlawed and persecuted and I think Francis of Assisi kind of looked at that and he had exactly the same ideas and values about poverty but he decided to be completely obedient to the church and that was that's really the only difference between them it's not not what they taught it's just he decided he would only do what the what the pope would permit him to do and um and so his poverty was orthodox and well then since poverty was heretical so then, so we have kind of orthodox, but then we also have other religions. So we have Judaism and Islam. Yeah. What made a different faith different than being a heresy? The easy answer to that is, is it's in the name, because um, her, um, heres- heresy comes from the Greek word heresis, and it just means choice. Um, it doesn't even mean incorrect choice. It, mean, it just means making a choice. And so if you're brought up within the Catholic Church, you're not allowed to make a choice and believe something different. But if you're uh, if you're brought up as a Muslim or if you're brought up as a Jew, you're just brought up in a in a different faith. You haven't um, in in itself it isn't sinning against the Church, the Catholic Church, the Christian Church, because it's not breaking away from it. So you do have heresy within Islam and heresy within Judaism. But a Jew is uh, or a Muslim is just somebody who's in a different faith. Whereas if you're you're in, uh, brought up in a faith and you break with it, you, you, well, you're an apostate, would be another way of, of putting it. There were many heresies, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but who were some of the kind of major heresies uh, in the medieval and early modern period, if you want to go that far? The way I would kind of categorise it, I would say in the early uh, medieval period, you've got you've got people who are we could call perhaps them theological heretics. They don't their their ideas are not popular. They're not trying to convert lots of people. But people like Pelagius are arguing about um, the nature of predestination, this kind of thing. Um, then we've got groups that we could call anti-clerical. So these are groups that wanted to reform the church itself. They wanted um, the church not to have uh, property, for example. So people like the Waldensians um, were like that. There's also a group who spun off from the Franciscans, who we call the spiritual Franciscans, who were deemed to be heretics because of their attitudes to poverty and clerical po- uh, property. I suppose then you've got groups that reject not so much the, the not, not Christianity, but the supremacy of Rome, and that obviously leads into the Reformation period um, and into Protestantism, but there are various groups in the Middle Ages like that. Um, there is three in terms of giving names to heretical groups, I suppose there are three that are really important. Um, there are um, Lollards, who were followers of um, a theologian, an Oxford theologian called John Wycliffe, and they denied various uh, tenets of, of belief, such as transubstantiation. Um, they're a group that they were related to, who were sort of influenced by them, called the Hussites, um, in the area that is the Czech Republic now, um, and they kind of put up military and political resistance to, to authority. Um, the most interesting group at all, I, uh, I think, is, is the group that I work on, um, but I think they're objectively the most
most interesting because they have some really wacky ideas. Um, and these are dualists, and the group of, um, that's most well known are, are the Cathars. And they, in a sense, they were a different kind of religion. In a sense, they're not a break from the Christian church because they believed in something completely different. They believed in, in two gods. So there was a good god and an evil god, and the good god had created everything spiritual and the evil god had created everything physical so it was the evil god that had created the material world the physical world that people lived in um so that's you know quite a kind of um exotic sort of belief and and quite unusual in terms of medieval um, western heresy particularly because of yeah having you know very very extremely radical analysis so um they they didn't see christ and and um and god and the holy spirit as being the same either everything Everything that's in the Bible had a different way of interpreting it, which relates to this idea of everything in the physical world being evil. I really like Jan Hus and um, Ziska, the the blind general. I love them just because they beat like heretic peasants, beat like the cream of the French army. Yeah. Oh, yes. In fact, thinking about about Hussites, that, that's another kind of category we could say, because some of the Hussites became um, apocalyptic. So the Taborites who are related to, to Hussites. So, yeah, that's, an, that's another kind of grouping is people who thought the world was about to end soon. And this, the first lot of this group kind of crop up in the, around the year of thousands. Um, Historians kind of argue about the extent to which people thought the world was going to end then, but definitely there are a lot, there are you know accounts of groups um, that seem to be emerging in that context. And then the Taborites, yeah, in them in in the Hussite Wars, they they thought the world was was about to end, and um, that's heretical because uh, yeah, the church decides when <laughs> when the world's going to end. You're not allowed to go around doing it up for yourself. <laughs> You know, there's probably as many reasons why people are attracted to heresy as there were different heresies. But is there what what generally kind of made people want to leave the orthodoxy? Mm-hmm. I suppose the, the most obvious one and the motivation for most people was the the way the church had become in being very wealthy, um, owning lots of land and, um, and you know, had become a very sort of significant economic and, and political power in its own right. So the majority of people who got called heretics were trying to go back to a kind of simple Christianity, essentially. Um, at, at its most extreme, they were trying to live the life of the apostles. So, uh, these you know, these were people that wanted to give up absolutely all of their problems. And, didn't, and some of them didn't think that any the church should have any property at all. Um, so those are they're the major sort of group, I suppose. Then there's groups who you know like the dualists who are looking for an explanation um, to the sort of paradox that if God loves us, why is the world so awful? You know, why, why is the human existence so miserable for the vast majority of people? So um, they. Dualism is a kind of it's a logical answer to that, which is that God, the God that loves us, didn't make the world. So a different God made the world, a different creator made the world. Um, then you've got, yeah, you've got kind of, you've got people who are thinking about um, orthodoxy in a kind of logical or philosophical way and saying, you know, some of these things just don't make sense. You know, how can bread and wine become literally the body and blood of Christ, not just symbolic, but literally? Um, how can the, how can a, a priest who's living in sin perform sacraments? So this was an important um, heresy. It was called Donatism. And, uh, and the idea of the donatists is that if a priest is in a state of sin, they can't commit, 
perform the sacraments. So, uh, so there's a problem there in terms of the sort of transmission of authority, if you like. Um, the church answered that by saying it's not the priest that's performing the sacrament; it's the grace of God working through the priest. So, uh, that was their their answer to that. And then you and then you've got you know what are arguably cultural movements really as well that just that are not setting out to oppose the church, but they just you know the, what they do doesn't actually all conform to to the church and you'll quite often find very unusual beliefs um amongst peasants who you know who don't particularly um have the advantage of uh, having a priest who you know is interested in talking to them about what they're supposed to believe so you find things that may be echoes of um of pagan beliefs or or just sort of unusual beliefs that that emerge so was there a a kind of class or type of person who was more likely to become a heretic so was it people thinking about these things or was there peasants like or was it, you know, one leading the other? Do we have any idea? Because we've got lots of heresies, which we call popular heresies, which did seem to attract a lot of people. Um, I think numerically it tended to be people in towns. They seem to be the group that, that most take up heresy. And that's that's. Probably, we think, because towns, particularly you know, in the high Middle Ages, were relatively new. Lots of people were moving into them from all different places, and so new ideas were coming up and being being encountered. So, so townspeople, yes, there seems to be a lot of them. Um, peasants, yes, although we've got fewer records, it's a bit hard to know. Um, but pretty much every social group took, you know, they, they could be people that took up heresy. So, um, for example, we have a way of thinking about why women took up heresy because. We've lots and lots of accounts of women becoming heretics because this is very threatening to the church and it's the church that's writing the accounts. Um, and partly, you know, that was because there weren't so many ex- um, um, opportunities for women within the Catholic Church. They couldn't really take on levels of authority. I mean, even if you're an abbess and you run a whole um, nunnery, you still have to have a, a man, you know, performing the sacraments and, and, and kind of looking after the, the world, the well-being of your nuns. Um, in some uh, faiths, so for example, within dualism, the men and women were theoretically equal. We we kind of we criticise that a bit because in practice, women you know did complain about <laughs> not being equal within these these groups. But certainly, the idea was that human souls were equal. They weren't men or, or women, and before they were put into your body. But then we've also got you know groups of people who just educated themselves and came to different kind of conclusions. So there's a, a, a fantastic book called The Cheese and the Worms by Carla Ginsburg. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> One of my favourite things I ever read uh, in university was *The Cheese and the Worms*. Excellent, yeah, it's like, it's just wonderful. And you know, he's Minocchio, um, with who's you know the heretic within it. He, you know, this is based on um, an actual uh, an actual uh, heresy. It's a it's not a fictional book. It's based on the the, uh, the trial record of, of uh, this character Minocchio. Uh, and he, you know, he became a heretic because he went and bought books and read them and came kind of you know, found different things in them and came to different conclusions from the church. But essentially, you know, he was an autodidact and just liked books and and just put everything in them together and came up with a, a different kind of solution, if you like. Um, so, yeah, any, you know, all, all sorts of groups of people um, are represented, you know, um, with lots of examples of nobility, for example, uh, becoming um, heretics and supporting heretics. If you could get a noble on your side, that was brilliant because they could support you economically and, you know, even militarily. And I guess kind of the same answer. There's there's probably lots of different ways of, of how heresies took place. So writing, mm-hmm. preaching, forming a club. I don't know. <laughs> what yeah. forms did yeah. they take? <laughs> 
yeah, writing, um, you know, we've got uh, quite a few heretical texts, actually, that, that survived. Um, the church, you know, wasn't very keen on saving them, obviously, but, for, you know, by one route or another, we have got a fair few, which obviously um, that's the most useful source for heresy because we've, we've got an idea of what, what they actually said about themselves. So writing, yes, um, and preaching. And as I said, uh, you know, you had to have a bishop's permission to, to preach. And so if you didn't, then, yeah, that is a form of heresy in itself, really. But it does it contributed towards an oral tradition of heresy so it's not all about text it's definitely about people discussing um, and debating with lots of accounts of people discussing ideas with other heretics or with with churchmen um, sort of trying these ideas out and seeing which were most convincing uh, with all sorts of heretical rituals some of these you know very esoteric um, in the Cathar faith you had a ritual called consolamentum if you like which is a little bit like baptism um, except you would have it as an adult and it was where you said um that yeah you know you wanted to enter that faith that group and from that point if you if you lived a good life after receiving the consolamentum you could escape the physical realm and go and live with with the good gods so rituals very important in by the time we've got um medieval inquisition so from the 1230s onwards they it's it, they really tighten up what what heretical practice is and it's actually the case that if you see a heretic and don't report it that in itself is a heretical crime um so just just seeing somebody and not doing anything about it um that's that can lead you to be tried by the inquisition and if you don't repent then um you're you know, you're guilty of, heret- of heresy in that sense so this means we've lots of people who um say they they'd seen somebody who they later found out was a heretic but they didn't know at the time that this person was a heretic so i suppose what i'm saying you know heresy can even be seeing heretic <laughs> it's that extreme extreme and and then also we've got you know the, the kind of accusations of heresy that the church made which we don't really believe but we've lots of accusations of church people saying well what do heretics do they burn babies and they eat babies and they have um orgies and they sleep with their sisters and mothers and <laughs> all this kind of thing um and this gets applied even to the um the knights templars the uh, kind of accusations of devil worship for example in the 13th century um so these kind of accusations they persist you know well into the 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 late middle ages and people would you know can kind of draw a line between um heresy where heretics are accused of things like witchcraft and devil worship um and uh and witch burning in the in the early modern period but there's a lot of discussion about the extent to which they're really the same thing i think Kind of leading on for that, what forms of punishments would you face as a heretic? You know, the most extreme is obviously being burned. Um, there's usually a fair few stages before that. So if you were in front of an inquisitor and you uh, admitted your, your, that you'd done something wrong, you committed a heretical crime, um, if you would repent and recant and say, I want to be back in the church, then uh, then you would, the, or the first time you did that, you would be accepted. You'd have to perform quite an extreme penance sometimes. So they particularly like to send people on very arduous pilgrimages and you were supposed to go on pilgrimage to, you know, to Rome or even to Jerusalem or to Canterbury um, or to St. James and uh, Compostela in uh, northern Spain um, at your own expense. And when you got there, you would be flogged. Uh, but that was... <laughs> So that was to show that you really had repented. You know, you weren't just saying that you'd repented, but you did all this. Um, and really, you were, you were only burnt if you went back on that and were involved in heresy again. And um, an interesting thing about punishment is, as well, because the the church wasn't allowed to kill any 
anybody, even, even a heretic. Churchmen are not allowed to spill blood. So there's this very close alignment between the church and supportive nobles and kings because when you were, um, if you were supposed to be uh, executed as a heretic, what happened was they, the church would say that they were handing you over to the secular arm and what the secular arm meant was to the people who can um, have weapons and who can actually legally kill you. So, um, so yeah, punishment is, is a finish, physical corporal punishment is not actually done by the church itself. Um, but some forms of punishment, I mean, people used to get lynched, for example, in the, uh, particularly before Inquisition, groups of, of people um, would uh, seize heretics and burn them for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes an army would, you know, supposedly find heretics and, and kill them. Um, you could also be flogged and imprisoned and um, and also expelled as well, exiled, being sort of cast out from your community, which was a particularly a harsh one, I think, because the medieval period is a period in which people very much identify in communities of people that, that they live with. Um, and there's a particularly sort of poignant story about some heretics who turn up in England in the 1160s. There's very few um, accounts of heresy in medieval England, but this group turned up and um, the King Henry II decided that they were going to be um, cast out. Um, so they were foreign anyway. They were supposedly speaking German, which is how they were kind of identified as, as different. Um, and they were cast out and it was a winter and the sources tell us that they froze to death because no one was allowed to help them so he cast them out no one was allowed to give them any sort of material support at all and they all died in the snow um but the other side of that was their house we hear that their house was dragged out of the village and burned so we learned something interesting there about what medieval houses are made of and um and we think you know why was it burned what's that about but perhaps that's about sort of purging heresy as though heresy was something that could hang around in a place and you had to you had to actually purge it um so maybe buildings could get punished as well <laughs> but you alluded to it there that there is kind of the secular arm to punishing heretics so was heresy purely ecclesiastical crime or could it be civil crime as well mm, it's a really really difficult question um and they, they are two separate things in a sense in the Middle Ages, but they're so close together that, um, that we, it's a little bit difficult to... I mean, obviously, a heretic is committing a crime um, against the church and a crime against God, but that would be interpreted as a crime against the Christian community. And then, of course, secular people are part of that Christian community. So this is part of a process of the church um, trying to make it the same thing. There's a very important bit of legislation in um, 1184, a papal bull that we call Ad sorry, Ad Abolendum. And, um, and Ad Abolendum is about the uh, formally, the church formally working with the secular arm. So it sets down that the, the um, secular bodies, kings, um, local counts, nobles have to support the church and work with the church uh, as part of the same, the same body. So it's a really important bit of legislation um, but then you know from the 13th century onwards the church is more and more in control of what the, what the uh, secular authorities are, are doing um, in terms of that so it's it's a difficult question it's it's because a medieval churchman, if you ask them, they would say, well, it's a crime against God and it's a crime against the Christian community. So therefore, it's a crime against against everybody, even though very often it's the church trying to defend itself, really, from, um, from groups of people that are opposing it. So I guess, ultimately, uh, why was heresy such a threat and why did the church want to prosecute heretics? 
Mm. Well, this, without being an apologist for the medieval church, it is, it is really important to point out that they um, certainly not all of them, but a lot of them were actually trying to save human souls. They, you know, they believed that if you don't believe the right the right thing, you can't go to heaven. So, um, in a sense, the threat is is to the human soul. Um, they want the, you know, this, it's their job to save souls. The Pope, at the end of the day, is the person who's um, accountable to God for for human souls that are lost and go to hell. So we do kind of have to say, um, you know, for a lot of them, yeah, the the threat of heresy is about you, you your eternal salvation. Um, um, having said that. Um, you know, a lot of the time as well, it's more obviously about power. But certainly, you know, medieval churchmen, you know, they wouldn't have, have completely disconnected the two. And probably the most important per, uh, person to mention in terms of the struggle of the church against heresy is a pope called Innocent III. Pope Innocent III, uh, he was a pope from 1198 to 1216. And he passed some incredibly important legislation against heresy. And he also worked on the idea of what we papal monarchy by which um, pre- previously um, it had been the case that the leading churchmen and leading uh, secular rulers would periodically kind of vie for authority against each other Innocent III decided that the you know the papacy is is in charge of everybody so secular rulers as well have to be um, have to do what, what the Pope says so if you're in charge uh, of everything ultimately then anybody opposing the Pope is sort of logically a heretic and so just in doing that your your soul is damned if you like um so the church is sort of in a process of creating a, a, monop- a sort of monopoly on belief. So there's no room for religious diversity, and um, so the so the question of you know what you um, it, the, the threat is diversity itself. You know that becomes a problem. People believing lots of different things becomes a problem, which ultimately does kind of come back to this, this question of the threat to human souls. So without without saying that. Um, that none of it was political. Certainly, it was. You know, the church is finding enemies, and certainly, it's it's you know, see, it's calling its uh, enemies heretics a lot of the time. Whereas these people who were just opposing it um, politically. But this question of the threat to human souls is something that you always have to keep coming back to. I think. Was the church consistent in its prosecution of heretics, or kind of was it linked to other political, social, and? kind of economic circumstances. I guess everyone always kind of thinks of why did the witch trials suddenly pop up? Yeah, it, it's definitely not consistent. Um, the the legislation against heresy becomes increasingly consistent and you know increasingly uh, logical internally because you know the church is really working on tightening this up. Uh, but it's you know in terms of how it uh, approaches individual cases of heresy, it's really really inconsistent. E- even in terms of this care for, for human souls, you know sometimes that just gets ignored. Um, it's sort of uh, I mean, I think, yeah, in lots of cases, heresy is, is an excuse for political activity. So, you know, one of the big uh, fights against heresy was a, a crusade that we call the Albigensian Crusade, which took place. Um, the northern French um, invaded southern France, essentially. It was uh, 1209 to 29. And, you know, th- this was begun by Pope Innocent III. And he, you know, he was trying to save human souls. But at this particular point, he decided, well, the only way to do this is to organise this crusade. And so, um, but to the actual 
crusaders themselves, then it's an excuse. You know, the vast majority of them were were there looking for, um, you know, land or wealth and what have you. The lead, you know, religious, um, the leaders of the crusades, crusades commanders, they they very often were very devout people who were genuinely trying to save souls as well. But but it suited their agenda um, as well to to conquer territory. And there's a logic there because you have to, you know, you've got to be in control of a territory to make sure that people in it within it are orthodox so you know even the people who ended up with huge territories out of the Algensian crusade um, you know you can still make a case that there's a consistency there that they're trying to um, you know to, to save souls um, you've got lots of heresies though where you can sense political um, goings on behind it we've got in the 1020s we've got a heresy at the town of Orléans in France which appears to be about some very odd beliefs and practices going on but actually you know people have looked into it and it's definitely it's it's political factions within um the the crown within the church that that it's actually about um there's one character who's uh, who most medievalists would say is the least um who least fits the term heretic it's this person called arnold of brescia and he lived in the 12th century and there's nothing heretical about him at all except for the fact that he wanted um the, uh, the city of rome to become a commune he wanted it to be self-governing and run itself and so he opposed both the emperor the emperor's control there and also the pope the papal control there so <laughs> when you actually look at what he believed religiously there's absolutely nothing there that isn't completely orthodox um and also with the peasants revolt you know some people at the time tried to link the english peasants revolt in um, 1371 to uh what's going on um in the religious world trying to link them to lollards for example but um that's you know fairly uh, you know spurious and obviously about making these this group of peasants and that whatever their concerns and demands were appear to be against the church rather than against the, the crown so yeah, in completely inconsistent, consistently inconsistent. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Uh, it brought me back to my you know Reformation days, which I really enjoyed. And like all the kind of anti-Trinitarians that pop up, and it's just like it's such a delightful, weird profusion of religion mm-hmm. in such like concentrated place. Yeah, <laughs> it's people, you know, people trying to work out why is the world like it is and how do we resolve the contradictions in the world and how do we resolve the contradictory things that we have, that we hear about God, you know, through all the, obviously, you know, the Bible um, is internally very inconsistent itself. So, yeah, it's, try, it's people trying to make sense of all these things, really. And that's it. I hope everyone is feeling at least a little bit heretical about one thing or another. Thanks to both Yoon-ha Lee and Claire Taylor for their time. You can find links to their work in the show notes. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. See you next month.